per usual, we'll have people drifting in over the next 10 minutes. Uh, let's bow our heads. Gracious Lord, with excitement and reverence, we gather again in your home, seeking your wisdom, your counsel, your strength, that we may serve others with the love with which you so artfully and painfully demonstrated 2,000 years ago. As we contemplate in this class some moments in our nation's history where you seem to have blessed us above and beyond, we express our gratitude and we look forward to the time when all of your saints can celebrate together. Amen. Welcome one and all. This is uh, week three of Swords under plowshares, wow. I just caught myself off guard when I realized that I misspelled committee on my title card. So having a, yeah, that's why I skipped right over it. So orienting ourselves again with uh, Edward Hicks's Peaceable Kingdom, the, the theme here is that as Europeans were contemplating this new continent, uh, at the time of great upheaval, both good and bad, in Europe, that they projected that this new world was a place of new possibilities and new beginnings. And just as the word was democratized with the advent of uh, movable type and translating the Bible from Latin into uh, the various languages, and people were now anointed with the word directly, as they shared their visions and versions of the good news, uh, sometimes the powers that be in Europe uh, wished that they would take their interpretations elsewhere. So, as of last week, uh, we began, or we ended with the beginning of an experiment in the central uh, eastern seaboard where William Penn Jr. had been awarded a sizable land grant by the king in debt, or in payment of debt to his father, and building upon both what had been practiced there for a few generations before by Swedes, um, who'd started a colony there in the 1630s, that uh, William Penn Jr. Uh, encoded in the original documents that set up uh, the government there that freedom of conscience was protected. Skipping back a little bit, this is uh, Thomas More, who in the 1500s wrote a book called uh, Utopia, which put forward a fantastic and fantastical vision of a world across the, the Western Ocean. Apart from its mythical geography, uh, it, it was uh, something to seek because essentially there all men, all manner of men uh, could be found in equality. So in the background of some of the learned minds of the 1600s, late 1600s where we're beginning today, the Thomas More's Utopia, and these are fantastical maps that were created for some later editions, uh, filling in the geography as told in the story. Uh, Thomas More's Utopia and, oh, uh, Francis Bacon, who wrote in the early 1600s, he wrote a book called uh, New Atlantis. There you are. Francis Bacon, New Atlantis. Likewise, positing a mythical land just over the western horizon where, in addition to all kinds of beasts and, and such, that mankind found a new Eden. So these are some of the, the secular myths that are going on behind the scenes uh, for the leaders and uh, some of the more learned folks in the latter half of the 17th century. And again, this is for one of the frontispieces of a later edition of the New Atlantis by Francis Bacon. And those columns are the pillars of Hercules as the ship sails off into the unknown. 
So, midpoint of the eastern seaboard is the mouth of the Chesapeake, actually, and north of that is the mouth of the Delaware uh, River. If you've ever sailed along the Atlantic seaboard, um, it is an unprepossessing entranceway, the Delaware Bay. Um, it is very shallow, the channels shift, um, it's uh, very wide, um, and just out into the ocean proper are hidden reefs. So how and why an inland port that became Philadelphia, which is about 60 miles from the ocean proper, um, how that became the main point of entry for generations of Europeans seeking opportunity in the New World is just is worth contemplating because Boston and, and New Amsterdam slash New York had been established before to the south. Charleston was also inviting, and Savannah, um, and Baltimore on the Chesapeake Bay. But somehow, for the almost 150 years, 135 years, that Philadelphia was the principal point of entry for all host, all manner of mankind, many of them seeking uh, religious freedom from Europe. And here's William Penn soon after arrival. This is actually before Philadelphia was built. There was a little uh, Swedish town south of the current site of Philadelphia, which served as the temporary headquarters for the uh, new colony. And here's the, the first uh, grant that William Penn made. Now, both in the frame of government that he set up and in all the materials that he, he circulated in England and in Europe, the promise of religious freedom was something that really lit a fire under people. Even as it might take uh, time, it might take months into years to collect the necessary money to buy passage or to hire a ship um, or to build a ship, as it were, for some later uh, folks, that it was uh, worth it given the, the tenor of the times. Rather dark, but uh, this is uh, one of the log cabins that dates from the late 1600s. For those who know and care about such minutia, that the log cabin was introduced to North America by the Finns and the Swedes in the 1630s, that it was not brought over by the English or the French, it was brought over by the Scandinavians and then adopted. So on your handout, there, there's a list on the right-hand side of a whole sequence of communities that were created uh, in a fashion to either be self-contained, to be utopian, to be uh, homogeneous, as it were. One of the first, if not the first, was a 40,000 acre grant by William Penn to a group of Welsh Quakers. They had to buy the land, and then they sold it to themselves. But uh, here's notation from William Penn to his surveyor uh, about where this 40,000 acre plot should be. Essentially, the western bank of the Schuylkill from where Philadelphia was going to be created, heading west. And on a map from 1685 that plugs in all of the uh, purchases to, to date, and this is only from 1682 to 1685, it gives an indication of uh, just how good William Penn and his team were at marketing the land. Now this is salient, this is relevant, not because of uh, somebody's land speculation, but because uh, here, where the little red dot is, it reads the Welch Tract, W-E-L-C-H, but it's the Welch Tract. So the 40,000 acres that William Penn sold to the Welsh would be this region right here. And the promise was that they would have a barony, that they would have the ability to have their own courts, their own language, uh, even as he was a... Uh, convinced Quaker? They were birthright Quakers. He was somebody who converted. Um, so even as they were nominally the same religion, um, he was giving them extraordinary powers uh, to self-regulate. And that was something that for them was incredibly important because it wasn't until 1689 in England that the Toleration Act or the Act of Toleration was passed such that 
uh, the harassment and the confiscation of land and property of uh, non-Anglicans was, at least in the, in the laws, eliminated. You still couldn't be a Catholic in, in England, mind you, in 1689, but um, at least the outright persecution of the Quakers and some of the other uh, Protestant sects was forbidden. Now, at the same time that William Penn was selling 40,000 acres to the Welsh, he was also selling about half that to, it says German Township right there. These days it's known as Germantown, and for those of you who know the American Revolution, there was a battle of Germantown in 1777, but from the outset in 1683-84, that it was sold to German Mennonites, German pietists, um, and they too were promised the ability to self-regulate. So, so long as they paid their quit rent to the proprietor, to William Penn or his heirs, that they were allowed to do their own thing. And in fact, as the dates on, on the handout show, that from the time that it was founded by Francis Daniel Pistorius and other Mennonites, in 1683, that it legally was its own uh, municipality until Philadelphia, uh, as a grand thing, was uh, reconstituted and expanded in 1854. So e even as there was a battle there in 1777, even as life went on, that it was significantly a German enclave up until the mid-19th century. So here's a little bit closer on the area called the Welch Tract, the Welch Tract. Uh, for anybody who is a golfer out there, Greg, um, the Marion Golf Course these days would be right about there. So that's where the U.S. Open is happening in a few, well, two months, three months. But golf aside, the, uh, the reason why, why this holds import, uh, not just for those who have a, a personal connection to it, yours truly, um, but to the larger whole is because uh, this was one of the first times uh, that en masse uh, a people uh, had come and as part of a larger whole, not, not as the, the overall dominant uh, group as in Massachusetts perhaps, but here as a subset, they were granted uh, the privilege to be themselves. Now, William Penn, was an absentee landlord for much of his proprietorship. Uh, he came over in 1682 and was on site for a little over two years before he had to go back and try and cover his assets uh, with uh, court intrigue. And it wasn't until 1699, I believe, that he came back for two years again. And in the meantime, while he was gone, that the people that he left in charge um, realized that the Welsh, if they were uh, one political body, that they would hold too much political clout. And so uh, the, the team that William Penn had left here stateside, or colony side, or as they called it then, plantation side, um, they, they decided to divide the Welsh tract into at least two different counties and split their, their influence. And despite their protests, despite their, their paperwork to the contrary from the proprietor himself, that they lost that fight in the courts. So the Welsh tract as a political entity ended less than 10 years after it began, even as the descendants of it stayed there for generations upon generations, and in fact, most of the area still carries a, a Welsh uh, heritage and nomenclature. So here's one of the original settlers. Um, and as with thousands of people who arrived to uh, the proto-Philadelphia in the 1680s, that they lived in caves, in riverbanks, um, until they could clear land and actually build lean-tos. And as fascinating as any of this might be just because of the sheer uh, difference uh, between now and then, uh, to me, uh, understanding their drive is what is most fascinating, that in, in Wales and in Germany, where many had come from, that the overt practicing of their religion was forbidden, and that they were subjected to ridicule and uh, public uh, floggings, and their property was confiscated, and they decided whole families, uh, whole, whole towns, um, to depart and take their chances on a new continent. 
1683, here's uh, William Penn presiding over a little court case. Meanwhile, after Penn had left, uh, here's one of the filings for the lawyers in the room. Uh, one of the filings by uh, Welsh Quakers to the magistrates of the moment to try and retain their political sovereignty. Uh, they lost the pleading. Still, they were allowed to practice their faith unfettered. They just no longer had the, uh, the clout, as it were, the economic or political clout uh, to keep others out. Amicus usque ad aris, a friend unto the altar, is a friend unto uh, what is contrary to one's own religion. So, again, one of the original groups that uh, took advantage of the invitation from William Penn and the political and religious open door that he, he had were the Mennonites, who Switzerland, the German part of Switzerland and parts of what's now Germany, where they began. Yes, sir. Would you uh, go back to that Latin phrase and expand on that a little bit? Sure. The, the, the reference, the implication of that phrase. Um, that one would do for another, uh, one would give one's life for another uh, to that extreme so long as it does not run contrary to one's own conscience. Um, Yes. Words, I, I'll forbear my religious viewpoint in deference to a friend, allowing him to forbear for me. Correct. We're, we're both we're going to meet somewhere at the altar as friends. Yes. Come coming there as we might. Okay. That's the aspiration. All right. Yes, Fred. It would be, it would be up there, absolutely. And later it was split into a third, or a a part of it was shaved off for a third county. Yeah. So uh, this is a Mennonite scene from Europe in the mid 1600s. So 1683 ish is when the first group of German pietists, Mennonites, followers of a gentleman named Menno, M E N N O, came to their several thousand acres, they called it German Township. Uh, this was the initial back of envelope, I, I would call it a napkin, but you know, it was more formal than that. This was the original configuration as set forth by the leader of this contingent, who if folks can recall way back to a year ago when we were talking about um, the first protest against human slavery, that the gentleman who did this map, Francis Daniel Pistorius, was uh, the initiator of the 1688 Germantown protest that said that no man should be uh, subjected to human bondage. So um, the same gentleman who last year had a, a starring appearance has a minor appearance here again. One of my overlooked heroes, this is what he supposedly looked like. Nobody really has a good likeness of him. Meanwhile, for the Germans, in, or for the Mennonites in Germantown, uh, they could do with their land as they saw fit, um, including selling it. And so this is uh, an indenture or a deed uh, for selling part of it with the leaders signing down at the bottom, including the famed Francis Daniel Pistorius. And this was the first uh, house of worship built in German Township, it's a Mennonite meeting. The Mennonites uh, convened with the Amish, I'm sorry, they convened with the Friends, the Society of Friends, uh, for decades uh, upon arrival. Ultimately, they did split off and set up their own structure, as it were. Now, there on your list on the handout is a rather lengthy and obscure sounding uh, group, the something something women of the wilderness, woman of the wilderness. If you can imagine that 
in Germany that one of the bright minds of the Protestant age in the late 1600s um, had calculated that the second coming was going to happen in 1694 and that it wasn't going to happen in Europe, it was going to happen in the New World. So, uh, there were many people, as we've seen in contemporary times, who are motivated by this uh, kind of vision and led by a then 21, I'm sorry, 20 year old uh, young man, an academic named Johann Fabius, that several dozen of them arrived to Philadelphia and uh, went a wandering, ultimately settling along a creek, a small river called the Wissahickon, um, where they uh, themselves lived in caves and uh, lived a rather monastic life. Now, one reason why the dates on their existence is rather short-lived, only to 1708. First, the second coming did not happen in 1694 as, as predicted there in the New World, and secondly, they practiced celibacy, such that um, when they died off, they hadn't really regenerated their numbers. Um, this is a theme that happens with some of these communities, but this was the first and uh, one of the more prominent ones um, where it happened. Um, people would actually go to seek uh, this gentleman and um, he was a brilliant mind and wrote voluminous letters, many of which are preserved, uh, but he lived in a cave on the creek um, uh, and otherwise eschewed um, anything of, of, anything that was comfortable. Uh, I don't know if he literally wore a hair shirt, but he was of that ilk and died young at barely 35. This was the only contemporaneous image of him done um, and rather strange garb, but that's what you get living in a cave. Most of the times he was very generous and fulsome in uh, his praise and uh, booing up of others. Um, when it came to women, he, he wanted for them to be spiritually uh, full, full formed and included, but uh, there was to be no physicality for them, just that there was no physicality for the men. So, Those who, who liked the ascetic spirit, um, they really found it in the valley of the Wissahickon. Now, some of the later arrivals to the uh, Wissahickon cave crowd, when that group essentially died off, that they wanted to do something and to do something more. And so uh, they initiated something about 60 miles, 70 miles west in the wilderness of Penn's Woods, Pennsylvania at the time. And they called it the Ephrata Cloister. And at least initially as well, um, the men and women who came here uh, were incredibly disciplined in how they comported themselves. Much of the day was in prayer and song. Um, they copied manuscripts and did beautiful, beautiful calligraphy, uh, much like the Irish um, and the Book of Kells kind of stuff, um, and became quite well known for it. And soon after founding, uh, Ephrata actually decided uh, that they could have a parallel existence um, for parallel inclusion for couples, that uh, it was okay for some to choose to be, to, to choose to abstain, and others, if they wished, to choose to be couples, and uh, during the day they could happily coexist in prayer together. Now, the group here at Ephrata, like most of uh, these German and Welsh and Swiss who come over through the late 1600s and throughout the 1700s, that most of them have in their core beliefs an aversion to taking oaths, uh, to taking up arms, and otherwise wish to live a peaceable existence. 
uh, in contemplative prayer, preferably. Now, long before the American Revolution boils over in the 1770s, that some of these communities uh, find friction with the larger world around them. Ephrata was literally out in the wilderness at the time. Um, it was beyond the reach of most farmsteading. Um, and they got on well enough with the local Susquehanna and some Delaware Indians who still live nearby. And so that wasn't an issue. But when the colony as a whole was up in arms, literally, about uh, the threat, whether it was from the French or the Indians or such, um, the fact that uh, the members of the Ephrata cloister would otherwise sit on their hands or fold their hands together in prayer did not go over well with uh, many of their new neighbors uh, who didn't share the same uh, aversion or moral rectitude. There will be an interesting wrinkle that happens come the American Revolution, though. For those of you who might have been to the Pennsylvania version of Amish country and seen on barn sidings, uh, big hex symbols and such, some of that uh, imagery can actually uh, go back to a common source with, th these, these are called fractors, F-R-A-K-T-U-R, the embellishments that they would do on the hymnals, and uh, some of it was uh, hand calligraphy, some of it was ultimately needlework but they became very well known for it. So, arriving in the 1730s was the first of a group, we just call the Moravians. Originally, they came to Savannah in 1735. If you can imagine that uh, a gentleman named George Whitefield, um, who became a preacher of note in America, and two fellows named Wesley, um, had come over to Savannah at the invitation of the, the new governor there um, to try and, and serve uh, the new colonists there. Well, the friction that Savannah had, that Georgia had with the uh, Spanish in Florida led many of the colonists in Georgia to want to take up arms to defend themselves against these incursions. And George Whitefield felt that it was against God's will to take up arms, and so he was asked to leave. Uh, the Wesley brothers um, ultimately found that the, the, the climate, and I don't mean the temperature, but just the uh, political and religious climate wasn't as favorable to them as they'd hoped. They went back to England and started something fresh. But Whitefield um, remained in America, and. Uh, he communicated to Moravians back in Germany that uh, he was going to found uh, a colony um, and he wanted for them to come over, which they did, and they joined him and ultimately arrived to an area in the north, north corner, if you will, of Pennsylvania, um, and together and then separately, um, because the Moravians bought Whitefield out, um, they established a mission called Bethlehem, which, and the, uh, the dates on the handout are correct, that uh, literally uh, from the time that Bethlehem was founded until I believe it's 1855 or thereabouts, that it was a company town. It was a religious company town that only Moravians could hold land or, or operate a business and it wasn't until just before the American Civil War, so over 100 years after the mission and the town were founded, uh, did uh, Moravians yield civic control over it. So uh, one of the figures uh, who uh, is important in Moravian history is a German count who felt the Holy Spirit, and he came over, I believe his name was Zingdorfer, but I will verify that for you later. Um, that he came over and preached, and both to uh, Europeans and to natives uh, was seen as, as a, uh, a greatly inspiring figure. So here's Bethlehem, circa 1750-ish, so soon after it was founded, um, straddling a nice, pleasant river.
And soon after founding Bethlehem, that the Moravians, because part of their, their, their sense of self was mission work, and it wasn't, it wasn't enough to go boldly out into the wilderness of the time and set up Bethlehem, that they needed to continue. And uh, they were very comfortable in uh, going amongst the natives um, and preaching the gospel. And so they would set up small outposts, small mission uh, villages um, that would be partnerships between the Moravians acting as missionaries and uh, the, the natives who, until this time, were still uh, transient with the seasons, but now they were being invited to settle down by the Moravians. Sometimes this worked, sometimes it didn't, because one of the missions that the Moravians started was called Janaden Hutton. And yes, uh, there will be one later in Ohio, but the first Janaden Hutton uh, founded by the Moravians was in Pennsylvania. And it too met a premature end about not quite 10 years after it was founded. But the one in Pennsylvania was wiped, was eradicated by uh, Susquehanna and other Indians who were upset about the domestication of their kin, of their brethren. Um, and so it was an act of, uh, of red on red violence more than it was um, what happened later. Yes, sir. Ah. Mm -hmm. All right, so there's a lot to cover yet on, on that sheet and, and here, but I just wanted to take a pause and uh, see what the pulse of the room is realizing that, that there are a host of, uh, of names and otherwise a, a potpourri of, of dates, um, is, is the context uh, working for you such that you know, um, there's a sequence here and that things are building upon each other? I ask because I know that for me, I was never a very uh, happy student when it came to writing papers where you had to give the thesis statement at the beginning and then uh, your bullet point paragraphs with all your supportive stuff that I'm, I appreciate the more experiential uh, way of putting things together myself. So um, just wanna make sure that how the information is coming to you that it, it's otherwise beginning to build of something that makes sense. Yes, Jim. Well, I think that there's a fascinating thread here, uh, and, that, and it's been evident in, in this week and in the previous two times, the previous two. All of this has been before our Constitution and Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War, and we grow up So it would be another whole dissertation 
um, to Jim's point regarding the U.S. Constitution, realizing I'm skipping over something to, to get there, that in the buildup to the Grand Convention, because it wasn't called the Constitutional Convention and it certainly wasn't called the Federal Convention at the time because both those were anathema to most individual state leaders at the time. But in, in 1786 or thereabouts, so the year prior to meeting in Philadelphia, in Virginia, Patrick Henry put forward uh, a bill that the, um, the Commonwealth of Virginia would pay the Anglican pastors, the Anglican priests. And because the predominant religion in Virginia was the Anglican. James Madison was the chief opponent of this measure. And in short, and he, he, he really clarified a lot of thinking for himself and then what followed a year or so later in Philadelphia, that Christianity had not only survived but flourished as an outcast religion and that our society was strongest if we accorded other people respect, freedom of conscience. And ultimately, Patrick Henry's motion was defeated and Henry licked his wounds on it um, and never cared for Madison after that. But it, it was a magnificent and just, just before you know, full flowering uh, articulation of why it is important that the, the government does not act, is not the de facto determiner for the individual. Going here back to Ephrata. So it was begun in the 1730s, I believe. Um, if you can imagine, 1755 was when Colonel George Washington joined the General uh, Braddock on their ill-fated mission out towards Pittsburgh, was now Pittsburgh, the Ohio River Valley. Um, Ephrata stood on the sidelines. Fast forward to the early 1770s, mid-1770s, and once again, as with many Quakers, that uh, the members of this particular Christian sect um, have no wish to participate in the larger current Likewise, the Moravians in Bethlehem. But George Washington personally went and met with the leadership of both Ephrata and the Moravians in Bethlehem and said, and this is, again, American Revolution before the, the Constitution, said, I respect your religious belief. However, what service can you render to me and mine, to my men, um, as we are contesting this? And both sects agreed to provide um, hospitals, recuperation areas, um, and uh, material for healing, as it were. So uh, in, uh, in Bethlehem, the, the largest buildings in town became hospitals, so when uh, the Continental Army and the militias were fighting in New Jersey, that many of the wounded, when they could be transported, if they weren't dead on the battlefield, uh, when they could be transported, that they spent months recuperating in Bethlehem. Likewise, during the winter of 1777 to 1778, Valley Forge, which is about 55, 60 miles from Ephrata, um, that uh, the folks here would send medical supplies to Valley Forge. What to me was ultimately most fascinating in appreciating the, the otherwise uh, protected uh, bubble that they lived in was that the leader of the Ephrata Cloister in early 1778, he walked because they were aesthetics. They, they didn't have, they had, horses and, and oxen for plowing the fields, but they themselves walked everywhere. So a gentleman named Peter Miller was the head of the Ephrata Cloister in 1778. He walks, takes a couple days, to get from there to Valley Forge to meet with 
His Excellency General George Washington. He goes to ask clemency for a Tory who is in prison nearby, near Valley Forge, and is sentenced to death for not only being a Tory, but also providing information and aid and comfort to the enemy. So Peter Miller from Ephrata is seeking a pardon of this person from George Washington. And Washington says, well, who is this person to you? And Miller says, well, he's actually my, my strongest enemy. He lives near Ephrata and he's always uh, a thorn in our side and has caused us financial harm. And Washington asks again, so then why are you here? Why have you hiked 55 miles to come for this audience? And Miller replies to the effect, because my Lord did so for me. And in, in the two accounts that are written about this exchange, that Washington said, done. And the gentleman was pardoned. And the, the Tory sympathizer sat out the rest of the war working on his farm and, and didn't interfere with either side again. But I just, I loved that these folks who otherwise, um, like Irish monks of old, uh, spent much of their days uh, working in calligraphy and otherwise um, in, in prayerful contemplation, that when the real world comes knocking on the door, that they found a way that they could accommodate their beliefs and still uh, assist where assistance was needed. And, and why the Tories didn't ask for the same, nobody knows. But uh, in a crisis of conscience, that the leader of it went and appealed for the life of somebody who was a, a real tormentor to him um, and was humbly victorious in gaining the favor of the person who could decide this, this prisoner's fate. Yes? Um, at the time, slavery uh, was all but a non-issue except for the Mennonites. Um, and they were the ones who, having arrived in 1683 to German township, Germantown, that in 1688, that they were uh, the first Westerners to, uh, to frame in language a protest against human bondage. Nobody else took up the cause quite as they did. They would still yearly uh, meet with uh, the Society of Friends and they would always bring the motion to a vote and every year it got voted down. Although gradually uh, throughout the early to mid 18th century that the yearly meetings of the Society of Friends would move a little bit more towards uh, a, a stated desire to do away with slavery. So uh, what at first was, we'll talk about that later, became by the early 1700s um, that uh, the buying and selling of, of slaves is, uh, is not what we would like. And okay, so then people to be in good standing as society friends shouldn't buy or sell uh, other human beings. And ultimately by 1775, uh, that's when they outright say that slavery's bad, the society friends. Uh, but most of the others, it, it's a non-issue because uh, their labor is from their own families um, uh, and from their own believers. So, so there's no outside workforce that they're relying on. Um, and um, in contemplating their navel, um, the, the, uh, the, the suffering of others under the whip is outside, you know, it's over the horizon for them, so they're not really um, paying much attention to it. Yes, Fred. And 
Yeah. For the Moravians, it didn't seem to uh, be, I don't know, uh, an ultimately negative exclusion for Bethlehem, but kind of like Hawaii for the longest of times, and even perhaps to an extent today, that um, outsiders can't own land, that technically, you know, for development in Hawaii, you have to lease it from, you know, 99-year lease or 999-year lease from the natives who, who still own that land, that in Bethlehem, that until 1855, when it became a secular municipality, uh, that the only businesses that were sanctioned and uh, the only religious practice that was sanctioned within Bethlehem itself was Moravian. Now, of course, you know, there were other people who lived near Bethlehem because th there was industry there and, and not all the labor that worked in the industry was Moravian. Um, so there were outsiders that they interfaced with regularly, but in, in terms of who owns it, it was the Moravians until 100 years after they founded it. Now I have some gorgeous slides, some gorgeous photos I should say, of Zor and Junaidin Hutton and points in Ohio. And I wasn't able to format them as slides. They're, they're just images right now, which I was frustrating. I was fighting with my machine at three o'clock this morning trying to get it to format. So I can talk about uh, the, the others, but I don't have the you know, handy-dandy pictures to look at. So, in the utopian communal and aesthetic models, um, it, after founding Bethlehem, the Moravians founded Nazareth, Janetahud, and, and Lidditz, all in Pennsylvania. And they were, uh, as mentioned before, regarding Janetahud, Pennsylvania, uh, they were Outposts, they were called missions, uh, where Moravians and Native Americans uh, would set up a community. Meanwhile, has anybody ever been down to Old Salem or Winston-Salem in North Carolina? All right. That was founded by Moravians who left Bethlehem and wanted to establish a beachhead in Carolina. And for those of you who've not been, it's an amazingly preserved um, and functioning late 17th century, I'm sorry, late 18th century uh, town, which has across a highway from it the modern city of Winston, although it's called Winston-Salem. Um, Old Salem has a women's college there now, and they have uh, uh, all kinds of Moravian uh, echoes um, in these cobblestone streets and otherwise, you know, period buildings. Um, and that operated as a distinct and uh, hermetically sealed community from, what, 1766? Until just before the American Civil War, when it got absorbed into uh, the county seat of Winston. So, here in Ohio, that e even before the American, so, uh, the American Revolution had concluded that the Moravians um, came west of the Ohio and uh, with and for the uh, Delaware Indians who'd been Christianized and uh, were migrating west ahead of the uh, American uh, farmsteading that Janaden Hutton was set up in the late 1770s uh, nearby, and disappointingly, uh, it was a colonial uh, militia out of the now Fort Pitt area um, that uh, essentially slaughtered 90-some Christianized Indians, um, men, women, children, elderly, um, in 1782. Uh, there was much hue and cry at the time, certainly uh, by the, the British, um, who used it as a, an example of just uh, how treacherous uh, the colonials would be and tried to use it to incite other Indian tribes against us. Um, and in fact, uh, 
for, for many Americans, if you will, at the time, that as they came to understand that these were not the prototypical, stereotypical savages, that these were Christianized Indians who were praying um, on their knees, singing hymns as a colonial militia killed them face to face, um, that it, it challenged presumptions. Um, it didn't ultimately change the tide of history and how the new American nation uh, would deal long term with the indigenous population, but you know, the Ohio, uh, a large part of the Ohio territory uh, was at least penciled in as a, a haven, as a reserve for the native population. But of course, you know, as the various colonies and then states uh, felt the need to expand, uh, those aspirations for setting it aside for the Native Americans uh, went the way of these things. And even under uh, President George Washington, there was still some hope, but that faded. Uh, so, again in the list, one of the towns, one of the communities uh, which most people have not heard of is called asylum. It's the French word for asylum. And for 10 years on, I believe it was the Susquehanna River in Pennsylvania, it was a French uh, town that uh, Robert Mars, one of the financiers of the American Revolution, had purchased um, and it was where French royals who were escaping their revolution were given residence, were given land um, such that you know they didn't have to fear the guillotine. Um, and only when in 1803 the, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte gave essentially a, a blanket pardon to royalty um, allowing them to come back and not have to face uh, charges for what they might have done or what they might have taken from the treasury um, did asylum close. But it was, for a decade, it was a French-only uh, community, uh, very insular, um, in the Pennsylvania wilderness. Um, it's, there's still some extant buildings, um, and it's one of those footnotes in history. But as, as we contemplate the American experience in, in all of its uh, ragged glory, that there are these outlying um, moments that otherwise, uh, as Jim was saying, kind of uh, challenge our, our all too linear uh, progression of, well, naturally, this followed, this followed, this. Well, in the moment, as history is unfolding, uh, there's, there's only uh, limited horizons and limited information that uh, people have, and even as the French Revolution, when it first, when news first arrived stateside, uh, was greeted with great joy that, oh, the French are experiencing the benefits as we did, and then came uh, what they still called the terror, um, and it, it changed uh, the perception of what was going on in France, so instead of wanting to uh, have America join the French cause that now uh, we are offering uh, sanctu sanctuary for those who could physically get out. Um, Lafayette was going to be one of them, but um, he decided to stay in, in Europe. How are we doing, Greg? Yes, Jim. Right.
1930 was when they officially dissolved. 1948 was when the last... Uh, yeah, it was just a pre-Civil War. And again, these, these are, are launch points for the, the larger understanding of America. That for me, in contemplating swords into plowshares and the verse from Isaiah and how it relates to the American experience, that taking that big step back and appreciating um, how in Europe the, the Reformation was such a galvanizing thing and that as people grappled with the word in their own vernacular and came to have a personal understanding and relationship with God, that that animated so much of what followed. And as those animated people came to this continent, uh, sometimes independently, sometimes building upon uh, what they knew of what others had done, that that principle of freedom of conscience uh, became integral to the American plantation, the American colonial, now the American nationhood experience. And too often, we just take it for granted. Um, and for me, it's, it's worth remembering that this is something which uh, people uh, pledged their lives, lost their lives in pursuing, and even today that there's a lot of people who will never be able to uh, appreciate, never be able to express uh, their own personal faith uh, without fear of, of the state or some competing religion uh, denying them that. So here we are. Yes, Jerry. No, it, it, it's just the site, but we'll, I'll have a few minutes on it next week, as it looks to be 20 after 10 right now. So thank you all very much.